Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. It is Friday. We've made it through another week. I hope you guys are doing fantastic. Uh, we have lots to discuss, so let's go ahead and jump into our first story. Kevin McCarthy, a House Minority Leader, leader of the Republicans in the House, has brought forth their big Commitment to America plan. So, interestingly enough, I have been wondering if the Republican Party was going to actually come forward with an actual policy plan. And this is a little bit vague, I'll say, but at least it's some sort of proposal for what they would do if they got into power uh, after the midterms. So we'll take a look at his announcement and then some details about it. Again, like I said, it is pretty vague and the typical stuff you've heard, nothing crazy. But this is their message to voters going into the midterms. They control Washington. They control the House, the Senate, the White House. They control the committees. They control the agencies. It's their plan. But they have no plan to fix all the problems they created. So you know what? We've created a commitment to America. We're going to talk about it today. We want an economy that is strong. That means you can fill up your tank. You can buy the groceries. You have enough money left over to go to Disneyland and save for a future. That the paychecks grow, they no longer shrink. So we'll stop it there. Uh, he does move on to talk about crime and some other things. But you can tell, number one on the list, as far as what they think will be successful as a message in the midterms, is economics. And so... They're thinking that the aftermath of the pandemic, if they can properly tack that on to Biden as an economic, you know, uh, l failing, then that will help them in the, in the midterms. And we talked about how even though, yes, inflation's bad, yes, gas prices have been high for a long time, even though they've gone down a lot uh, over the last few months, that just cannot be pointed back to the Democratic Party or Biden. And I'm happy to do so if it was uh, factual, but it's just not. And we've seen a lot of these same effects of the midterms worldwide. And so that is a great way to understand it can't be the leader in one country causing worldwide wide inflation unless they're doing something absolutely uh, insane. And so uh, that is going to be the message, though, from Republicans. And I think Biden needs to think about, as well as the Democratic Party and all of these uh, races, how they're going to message in a way that's not... Yeah, minimizing people's economic hurt, but it's also making it clear that, listen, continuing the policies that we're fighting for right now actually is going to lead to the best outcome over the, la uh, the next two years and beyond. And just because we're not there economically yet, even though we've seen really good indicators with uh, job growth and unemployment, um, as well as the slowing down of inflation and dropping of gas prices, we're not where we want to be yet, but just Put the trust in us to continue doing what we're doing because we have at least brought things back in the right direction after a devastating uh, economic time. But to quickly read about this a little bit from the Washington Post, if Republicans do win control of the House, they will have the power to hold hearings and propose and pass legislation, but their ability to make new law will be limited, even if the party also takes the Senate. Uh, President Biden can veto bills and many policies related to crime as well as school curriculum and transgender issues are controlled at the state or local level. Still, the plan served to stake out what the party considers key pitches to win over voters in November. So a little bit of an interesting analysis there, uh, just saying that proposing from the Republican Party's perspective, all of these things are going to do to fight ba uh, Biden's bad policies is a little bit silly because as long as Biden is there to veto uh, whatever they put forward, 
they're not really going to be able to materially uh, put things, you know, into law or anything like that. But you got to run some campaign. And this is their message. Here is Biden responding to this commitment to America plan. The House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, went to Pennsylvania and unveiled on what he calls a commitment to America. That's a, that's a, a thin series of policy goals with little or no detail that he says Republicans are going to pursue if they regain control of the Congress. In the course of nearly an hour, here's a few of the things we didn't hear. We didn't hear him mention the right to choose. We didn't hear him mention Medicare. We didn't hear him mention Social Security. So let's take a look at what Kevin said today. Okay. He said we- <clears throat> and then he goes on to critique it. But I do think flipping it around and saying, listen, you can make all these promises uh, that you want about what the Republican Party is going to do to turn around um, the economic issues we have. But we understand what you have done historically when you get in power. And we also understand what you uh, have fought for and won on in the case of Roe v. Wade uh, in this present moment. And so let's bring it back to that. Let's you know, refocus the conversation around the real evidence we have about what it looks like whenever the Republican Party is in power. And uh, here's just to be completely intellectually honest, here's the little one page or PDF that they have putting this out. So it's not just me characterizing it. Uh, this is their actual document, an economy that's strong, a nation that's safe, a future that's built on freedom, and a government that's accountable. So again, those are great things to say, whatever. But you've shown no uh, you know, no action in the past or strategy to actually follow through on any of those promises. And the specific policies that we have heard you put forward are not great. The last element I want to look at about this is this somewhat precise focus that has gotten sparked up on the right around the IRS agents being hired under the Inflation Reduction Act. And the idea is to scare people that the Biden administration and Democrats are investing a bunch into the IRS to chase after you as an average taxpayer. And we've talked about this before, uh, but we'll break down why that's misleading in a second here after we see uh, Kevin McCarthy talk about it. This is what we'll do. But on that very first day that we're sworn in, you'll see that it all changes. Because on our very first bill, we're going to repeal 87,000 IRS agents. So great applause line. We're going to repeal 87,000 IRS agents. Why is that a talking point? Well, in the Inflation Reduction Act, the figure they got was 87,000, the right wing that is. Really, it's actually just refilling roles that are a bunch of people on their way out anyways. The majority of those actually are. And then they are increasing funding uh, to an extent. And so it's a very easy talking point to fall back on to say, oh, the IRS, y'all are all scared of that, right? Well, they're funding it more to come after you. Incredibly misleading because actually what that's supposed to do is give the IRS the resources that it doesn't have now uh, properly to look into the most powerful, most complex um, individuals and get the proper taxes back from them because it is very logistically challenging to fully audit someone who is a multi-billionaire um, compared to an average taxpayer. So whenever they don't have the proper resources, they actually end up bothering the UNIs of the world more than the massive billionaires with all the lawyers and all the uh, complex, you know, uh, uh, tax documentations. And so for them to go get the proper money that is 
hugely outstanding in the United States as far as the wealthy tax dollars that are not being paid. They need the proper resources. And throughout the process of doing that, they would actually get back more money than they're being funded, which is incredible. So according to CBO, the president, uh, the president's proposal, $80 billion increases in IRS funding, uh, would yield approximately $200 billion of additional revenue over a decade. So the $80 billion increase in funding would yield $200 billion more in revenue. And again, the idea behind it is to uh, fund them and staff them properly to be able to uh, go after the most wealthy among us, which I am very much in favor of. So there it is, the commitment to America plan being rolled out by the Republicans, trying to change the conversation from just look at the horrible threats to democracy, look at the horrible actions they've taken on abortion and reframe it as them having some sort of plan because they've gotten pretty <laughs> famous for being a policy-free par uh, party. And I guess they're trying to change that uh, at the behest of Kevin McCarthy. So we talked previously about how this special master was appointed and luckily the DOJ was able to appeal and continue their investigation um, under the ruling of two Trump-appointed judges and a Barack Obama-appointed judge. And it was a unanimous decision. So two Trump-appointed judges said, yes, the DOJ can go forward and continue to investigate. But the special master process is still happening. And we talked about how the first step the special master, um, you know, said to the Trump team was, okay, you keep claiming that you declassified all these documents. Please present evidence that that happened. And the Trump team came back and said, no. We, we're not going to do that. And they sent a letter to this special master saying, uh, we don't feel like this is something we should be required to do, and on and on, which is hilarious because the special master was someone that Trump actually and his uh, lawyers said, we want this person or another to be selected. And one of their options were selected as a special master to look over this evidence. Uh, and yet the first step this person puts forward isn't able to be followed through uh, by the Trump team. Well, step two has also not been able to be, uh, or step two is also not, I should say, Trump's most ideal scenario. So uh, we'll read about this from Media and then discuss. U.S. District Judge Raymond J. Deary, who is serving as a special master, uh, the special master former President Donald Trump requested to review documents seized from his home, ordered Trump's lawyers Thursday to make an official declaration if they truly believe the FBI planted evidence. Deary's order read, no later than September 30th, 2022, plaintiffs shall submit a declaration or affidavit that includes each of the following factual matters. A list of any specific items set forth in the detailed proper property inventory that plaintiff asserts were not seized from the premises on August 8th, 2022. So again, it was so funny to watch the initial request from the special master be, all right, you keep saying that all these documents were, were declassified, show some proof of that. And the Trump team wasn't able to do that. And then the second thing uh, the special master requests is, okay, well, you keep saying that the FBI planted evidence. Bring some evidence of your own uh, forth that that actually happened. And likely, they haven't responded yet, but likely they will uh, not be able to provide that evidence either or say that they shouldn't be required to because there is no evidence of it. And that's what's so interesting in these legal settings to watch is People's stories change dramatically when all of a sudden lying would be a crime. Because on social media, Trump feels perfectly comfortable screaming that, oh, the FBI possibly planted evidence. And I have the unilateral ability to declassify 
anything by just thinking about it, as we saw him say yesterday, um, or whatever it is, because you're not going to be held accountable for telling those lies. But then whenever it's actually under a court of law and then the special master is saying, listen, I need you to, uh, with an affidavit, make those claims and provide some evidence for them. Uh, the tune gets a lot softer. They get a lot less uh, confident about the claims that are being made. So fascinating stuff. It's just one after another for Trump right now. We saw the attorney general of New York City, uh, Letitia James, do her lawsuit, which is now being forwarded to the IRS. And that will be looked into. And hopefully Trump will be held accountable for that. But then also, uh, we saw the DOJ successfully appeal to get, uh, to continue their investigation into Trump. Um, in relation to the FBI raid. And then the special master is not as, you know, completely pro-Trump as maybe Trump had expected and is actually doing some reasonable uh, steps to litigate this. So things aren't going great for the old Donald. Um, and I absolutely live for it. Herschel Walker just is someone who never stops sharing the most beautiful and insightful thoughts with America. Um, that he has. So today I have a moment to look at of him saying that why do people think that they know better than our founding fathers and they're trying to change our constitution? Why are they doing that? We shouldn't try to change our constitution. Well, just if you're listening to me right now and you already understand why that's silly, uh, say it to yourself, but we'll look at this video and then laugh about it. When you go to office, be elected to office, your oath is I would defend the constitution. So why does everybody want to change it? They don't know better than our founding fathers. And it's time for them to look at what is written on that paper and hold this country true to it. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Okay, so that sounds nice, right? And there is an element of truth to defending and serving the Constitution, uh, not serving an individual or whatever it is. You're serving the Constitution. But what does that mean when people say that? It means you're serving the uh, idea and promise set forth by the Constitution and the um, structure that was set up with it. And that's absolutely valid. I think that's beautiful to believe in that. But to say we shouldn't change the Constitution, how could we ever think we know better than the Founding Fathers, is ridiculous because the Founding Fathers set up a mechanism to do just that by amending the Constitution. Uh, because obviously, some of those amendments were giving women the right to vote, black people the right to vote, uh, establishing under the law equal rights. And so, we did know better than the Founding Fathers on that, right? Now, I think it's absolutely genius what they were able to set up in the time that they were in. Uh, they really did create a system that has lasted uh, in a magnificent fashion, but they understood that they didn't even know best because they uh, put, you know, forth the concept of amending the Constitution. And then we took that and made the Constitution better and made our country better. And so I think Herschel Walker genuinely just doesn't understand that. I don't even know if he would necessarily know what the amendment process looks like. But I think we need to stop straying away from uh, being proudly better in our understanding of the world we're in than the founding fathers. Because some people genuinely think it's like heresy to critique the vision of the founding fathers. No. They, you know, existed a long time ago in a very different human context. And we can take the incredible parts of what they set up 
and then make it a whole lot better. And so it's not to say throughout the Constitution, no, it's uh, so important, uh, but add on top of it and don't just leave it for what it is. And so I think being passionate and uh, aggressive towards making that progress and improving the past system we have set up is wonderful. Herschel Walker disagrees, but uh, there he is sharing his insight. Tucker Carlson has uh, continued his tirades and his discussions around why you really shouldn't be as pro-Ukraine as you really are. Now, we talked about in the past segment, I don't know where this is coming from. I don't know why he chose to make this one of his issues, but pretty much since the very beginning of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, he's been at least casting doubt on the support of Ukraine or explicitly saying, why should I support Ukraine? I'm on the side of Russia uh, or complimenting Putin in weird ways. Well, this time he's taking the opportunity to criticize Zelensky after uh, Zelensky called on other nuclear nations to make clear what their response would be to a Russian uh, nuclear attack. And so uh, if you missed it, pretty much Putin came out and said, listen, if anyone's threatening nuclear weapons, you better be careful because, and then what he's alluding to is we could do it as well. And it seemed to be a pretty obvious threat that, uh, listen, Russia has nuclear weapons and we're willing to use them type moment. And so then Biden's response was kind of, uh, I'm not going to tell you what our response would be. This was in a 60 Minutes interview. And we haven't heard a clear layout of what the response would be if nuclear weapons started being used in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so Zelensky is saying, I want y'all to outline what your response would be, presumably to uh, discourage Putin from using them, right? Because if you make clear a dramatic response you would take, maybe he wouldn't do it. Now, I honestly don't know what the proper strategy would be, but you'll see here Tucker Carlson and his guests wildly misrepresent uh, what Zelensky said and make some weird and incorrect analysis about the situation. Colonel Doug McGregor, virtually alone among American military analysts, understood the potential consequences of this war the very first day, the day it started. He was attacked for that. We're honored to have him join us tonight. Doug McGregor, thanks so much for coming on. If Zelensky is demanding that we preemptively nuke Russia, you would expect someone in Washington to say, whoa, 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 that's crazy talk. But I don't hear anyone saying that. Well, there are a couple of things at work. So... (laughs) You just, when you're watching a situation like this, don't forget that if it feels weird to you and seems like something that never happened and it's coming out of Tucker Carlson's mouth, you're probably right. Zelensky didn't say preemptively nuke Russia. No. First of all, almost from the very first moment that the Russians moved into eastern Ukraine, uh, a succession of retired generals and political hacks in Washington and London and elsewhere have been declaring imminent victory for Ukraine. Seven months later, and the Ukrainian army is bled white. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops have been killed or wounded. Ukraine is really on the ropes and trying to create the illusion that that's not the case. At the same time, Vladimir Putin has finally concluded that he can't negotiate with Kiev, that the real... Okay, we'll let it continue, because this is just, you know, uh, two plus minutes of true insanity. But this is the same person who's talking right now with Tucker Carlson, who uh, right before the news came out that Ukraine was making massive advances and was uh, getting a lot more successful in their uh, military goals than 
they were previously. He made the prediction that the war is going to be over possibly by this weekend, and uh, it's looking horrible for Ukraine. And then, boom, we got news that Ukraine was actually doing a lot better. Um, and it, it's just such an embarrassing moment for this guy, and yet he's still being brought on to give his analysis and to pretend like the facts on the ground are different different than they're at, <laughs> sorry different than they actually are. Problem is, of course, Washington, and that Washington will not negotiate with him. So he's opted for partial mobilization, bringing in additional forces, ostensibly for the purpose of ending this thing. And at the same time, he's very aware, as any of us are who are in the defense community in Washington, that there's been a lot of loose talk for several months about the viability of waging a limited nuclear war against Russia using the so-called tactical nuclear weapon. This sort of thing is very frightening to the Russians. They've made it very clear that their use of nuclear weapons is limited to retaliatory strikes in the event that we or someone else strikes them. So they just wanted to reaffirm clearly. Okay, so we'll stop it there. But you can see everything is framed through the Russia is the victim lens, right? And, oh, this this is not Putin bringing the conversation of nuclear weapons into this as a possibility by constantly reminding people that Russia has nuclear weapons and he is the aggressor. No, 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 no. This is Putin just saying, listen, you guys keep threatening us and we might have to use nuclear weapons in response. Now, to be clear, since the very beginning of this conflict, Putin, Putin has been the one bringing up nukes very early on. He said, listen, any threats from the West, he wasn't necessarily talking about nuclear. He said nuclear or otherwise, just you taking part, supporting Ukraine might cause us to have to retaliate, retaliate in some way, which could be nuclear. Uh, and so he's the one who keeps threatening this. And we all understand that Western countries aren't just going to nuke another country all of a sudden. That would be just unfathomable. That's not a thing that's going to happen, but Russia is the one who does seem to be way more loose with what the requirements would be for them to feel like that is justified. And uh, we understand that because Ukraine is doing a lot better right, right now in the war, and because they've made advances, Putin might be getting desperate and want to start using those tactical nukes, which as we've discussed before, if you missed it, um, when I hear nuclear weapon, I'm picturing eviscerate an entire city type image these tactical nukes are a little bit smaller scale but still massively devastating um, but that's what's being discussed so to read about what actually happened with this Zelensky news uh one of let's see here reading from newsweek a senior aide to ukrainian president volodymyr Zelensky is urging the united states to flesh out specific retali retaliatory measures if russia were to invoke nuclear strikes against ukraine and then Biden said, the United States is ready to pursue critical arms control measures and nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. So I think it's clear that no one on the Ukrainian side or the West's side is just wanting to use a nuke all of a sudden to take out Russia. But if Russia is seriously considering using nuclear weapons, then I think it's fair to say, what is the response going to be from the West? What is the response going to be from people supporting uh, Ukraine. Now, I, I think we have to do everything possible to avoid some si sort of nuclear uh, conflict, especially in any hypothetical world where 
a Western country and Russia get in a nuclear conflict. That's just, you know, world ending type stuff. So that can't be one of the options until the very, very, very last second. But I understand why the question is there on the part of the Ukrainian military, the Ukrainian leadership and Zelensky. Okay. This is such a wild story to be talked about in this day and time. It's just wild that people still believe this. So there is a GOP House candidate who got endorsed by Trump, who now has uh, been exposed for previously believing, and I don't know if he's ever publicly walked back these statements, so possibly still believing, and aggressively advocating for women not having the right to vote, that they shouldn't, that women are not uh, able to properly, critically think to be able to do an act like voting. So we'll look at the CNN report breaking this uh, news. But first, reading from CNN, a Michigan candidate for the U.S. House, backed by former President Donald Trump, once railed against giving women the right to vote, arguing that America has suffered since women's suffrage. John Gibbs, who defeated in the primary an incumbent Republican who had voted to impeach Trump, also made comments in early in the early 2000s, praising an organization trying to repeal the 19th Amendment, which also argued that women's suffrage had made the United States into a totalitarian state. As a student at Stanford University in the early 2000s, Gibbs founded a self-described, quote, think tank called the Society for the Critique of Feminism that argued women did not, quote, possess the characteristics necessary to govern and said men were smarter than women because they are more likely to, quote, think logically about broad and abstract ideas in order to deduce a suitable conclusion without relying upon emotional reasoning. Okay. Seems like a real stand-up guy. Um, and then here is that news being delivered on CNN. Also in our politics lead, get this, a congressional candidate supported by Donald Trump, by the way, whose past writings and associations indicate that he is against women voting. We're talking about John Gibbs. You might remember him because with some financial support from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee with ads, we thought he would be an easier candidate for their Democratic nominee to beat. He defeated Republican Congressman Peter Meyer in this year's Michigan primary. Meyer, of course, voted to impeach Donald Trump. Andrew Kaczynski, the senior editor of CNN's K-File, joins us now. Andrew, what do you found? So Gibbs is a former Trump administration official uh, who in the early 2000s ran this uh, think tank called the Society for the C uh, Critique of Feminism. Uh, and it basically argued uh, uh, several things, one of which was that the U.S. has has greatly suffered from from women having the right to vote, uh, that women uh, did not possess you know the necessary uh, qualities to govern, um, and that women should not be allowed to be in the workplace. Basically, so on the website you found he he gives specific reasons as he as to why he thinks women should not have the right to vote. Yeah, so he makes this argument uh, that. The 19th Amendment that allowed uh, women to vote, um, he says it's been unequivocally bad for the United States. He says the 19th Amendment led the whole U.S. government to increase in size, um, adding, uh, we conclude that the U.S. has suffered as a result of women's suffrage. Now, on a few other occasions as well, he also praised an organization that was actively trying to uh, repeal the 19th Amendment, uh, his own website uh, that he maintained called this organization Great. Uh, he even wrote them an email that they then posted on their website in the early 2000s that said, you have my support. And his, we and his website was also critical of women in the workplace? 
Uh, his website was really critical of women in the workplace. It's sort of the arguments uh, that, you know, generalize sort of sexism that you might hear. He basically said with women in the workplace, uh, his quote was, you know, men have to basically bend over backwards to avoid uh, offending women. Um, you know, he argued that women in the workplace led to frivolous uh, sexual harassment lawsuits and, you know, men couldn't make as many jokes. Wow. Uh, the most profound part of that to me is him supporting an organization that's literally working to repeal the 19th Amendment. That is incredible. And I think it shows you that as much of society moves forward, there's some of us that either never move forward or who are actively launching themselves backwards. And I think it needs to be watched out for. And I think it's why if you're not taking steps forward, someone's going to take steps back or, you know, drag you backwards. And this is why the fight for progress is indefinite. And it has to be continually pushed for because there are always going to be people who never subscribed to the ideology that brought America forward or a society forward in the first place. And so whenever the guards go down from people who think they've won on a particular issue, that's when they're going to use, uh, that's what they're going to use as a moment to try to take us back to the time they felt was more, um, in their vision. And so it's very, very frightening to see this popularize on social media. Um, and among some of these right-wing individuals. And I think I've talked to people even who don't believe me when I say there's a sizable portion of our country who has this type of ideology, um, but it's there. And it's actually growing a lot among young men who have very sexist views uh, because of their social media diet. And they're being kind of propagandized into believing those types of things. And this guy is an example of that where now he's running for office, so I'm sure he'll try to soften his message. But this is his belief. And this is what uh, he feels and thinks about women. And I think to genuinely be walking around and thinking that women are less than you and shouldn't have a right to participate in our democracy and have their own voices heard within that democracy uh, and get to govern in that democracy if they're elected is really incredible. It's very sad. Um, and hopefully John Gibbs will be taken down because of this and his other uh, horrible views. Alex Jones is uh, having his second defamation trial. So we watched a lot of the first one, and the result of it was that $50 million will have to be paid out, almost $50 million, um, by Alex Jones. Well, a second one's happening for more of the families, and it's just as Looney Tunes. He... Uh, you know, went under, went under oath and was just completely off the rails, wasn't taking it seriously, um, was super aggressive at moments. And I have a little segment to show you here where he's genuinely incapable of understanding why he should feel bad about the things he said and the result of that. And so if you've somehow lived in a cave and missed it, he went on his show and told all these conspiracies about the, uh, shooting that happened, Sandy Hook, um, at Sandy Hook, and said that all of these parents were crisis actors, their kids didn't really die, and this was just an effort to try to take people's guns away. And they were doing a false flag operation to do that. And because he told all of these lies, his followers tracked down these families and harassed them to the point where some of them had to move 
literally moved to avoid harassment multiple times uh, because of the lies he was telling on his show. So real damage. This is why we would have defamation, right? Um, well, he doesn't understand that clearly. He's so caught up in his own world that he sees himself as the victim as this moment uh, identifies. You have families in this courtroom here that lost children, sisters, wives, moms. Is this a struggle session? Are we in China? I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, and, I, and I'm done saying I'm sorry. I didn't pregenerate this. I wasn't the first person to say it. American gun owners didn't like being blamed for this as the left did, so we rejected it mentally and said it must not be true. And but I legitimately thought it might have been staged, and I stand by that, and I don't apologize for it. And, and, and don't apologize, Mr. Jones. Please don't apologize. No, I've already apologized to the parents over because and over again. Because we know you're I don't apologize to you. Objection. Don't apologize to you. You're going to do it again. Objection, Judge. Objection. Objection. Argument. Don't apologize to you. Okay, so to him, it's more important to scream at the, the lawyer as the families are in the courtroom. Um, apparently, reportedly, there is tears happening, um, which totally makes sense on the part of the families. And he feels so, you know, uh, offended by the way the lawyer is talking to him. And he feels so justified in being angry that he's having to apologize over and over. Yes, whenever you go after the families of kids who got killed in a school shooting, uh, you are going to have to apologize once you realize you were wrong. A lot of times. And in this case, because you did real damage to these families, you're going to have to pay out uh, and be held accountable under the law because of it. And as we saw at the first trial, he's just so detached from reality, he doesn't get it. And then we saw... Uh, that moment whenever Channel 5 interviewed him where he goes, yeah, I killed the kids. I killed the kids. Oh, it's all my fault. It's all my fault. I killed the kids. Being sarcastic um, or whatever. And it was because he genuinely didn't understand why he keeps being pressed and asked and held accountable for the lies he told. Um, and of course, we understand that, yes, freedom of speech is important. And there's some guardrails like libel, defamation. And so you can see if in front of a jury, you can prove that someone, <coughs> excuse me, defamed you uh, to such an extent that they should be punished for it. And that's what's happening. And I'm happy that it is. And hopefully this trial goes similar to the past one where he has to uh, be held accountable financially because that's what speaks to Alex Jones. Uh, but truly incredible stuff. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. I hope you have a spectacular weekend and I will see you on Monday.